0: Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk passage by passage through Dante's work comedy, and we have come to near the bottom of hell, canto 33 of 34 in Inferno. We are going to uh, essentially be in the first half of Canto 33, because this is the great speech by the last great sinner of hell. We are going to have several episodes on this sinner, but first let me remind you where we are. We are on the ice sheet of Cocytus, the ninth circle of hell. We are amongst the traitors of all sorts. We have passed through those who have been traitorous or treacherous to their family members. We are now moving on to those who have been traitorous or treacherous to their political parties or to their country or to their political or regnal allegiances. That's where we are right here with this guy who is on the ice. We got a glimpse of him in the last episode of this podcast. He's chewing on the head and brains of another figure and Dante offers him a pact. He says, hey, if you'll tell me your story, and if it proves that you were wronged, then I will reimburse you in the world above. So here comes the story. Before we get to it, let me say what we're going to do. This episode of the podcast is introducing this figure. So I want to talk about the historicity of this figure. Then I want to read through his long speech, almost 72 lines long. I thought about ways to break this up and there's just no way to do it. You've got to take this thing as a giant chunk. This episode, the historicity and the kind of elucidation of the passage itself, then we're going to want to talk about other things that surround this last great center of hell because, and here's the kicker, he sums up so much about comedy so much about inferno up to this point so let's get to it canto 33 of inferno lines 1 through 78 you can find it on my website markscarborough.com. you can print it off you can make notes and you can even drop a comment there and we can continue the discussion about this most disturbing and final great center of hell Raising his mouth from his savage meal and wiping it on the hair of the head he'd been gnawing from behind, this sinner began, You wish me to renew the despairing sorrow that already presses down on my heart just by thinking about it, even before I tell it? Well, if my words will be the seeds which become the fruits of infamy for the traitor that I munch— You'll see me cry and speak at the same time. I don't know who you are, nor in what fashion you've made your way down here, but sure enough, it seems to me you're a Florentine when I hear your voice. You've got to know that I was Count Ugolino, and that this one is Archbishop Ruggieri. Now I'll tell you why I'm his neighbor that the final result of his evil reckonings, despite my trust in him, was that I was seized and put to death, there's no need to tell all that. But there's no way you could be able to learn how cruel my death was. Listen up and figure out if he wronged me. A little peephole in the mew that's now called by the name of hunger on account of me, and in which others are yet to be shut up, had already shown me through its slit several waxing and waning moons when I had a nightmare that tore open the veil of the future for me. This one appeared to be the master and the lord tracking the wolf and its cubs over the mountains that obscure luca from the pisans driving lean eager and trained dogs he had gualandi along with sismondi and lanfranchi arrayed out in front of him after a short run the father and his sons were worn out It seemed to me that the flesh was torn from their haunches with razor-sharp fangs. When I woke up a little before daylight, I heard the cries of my own sons who were locked up with me, asking for some bread in their dreams. You are truly cruel if you're not already suffering at the things my heart was predicting for me. If this doesn't make you cry, what would... Then they woke up, and the time approached when our meal was usually brought up to us. We were awfully afraid because of our dreams. That's when I heard the nails being driven into the door down at the base of that horrible tower. That's when I looked at the face of my children without saying a word. I didn't cry. I'd turned into stone inside. But they cried, and my little Anselm said, You look so weird, father. What's up? Even then, I didn't cry, nor offer a reply all that day and the following night until the sun shone on the world again. The moment a few rays of light shone into that sorrowful cell, I could see my own face stamped in their forefaces. I chewed on my hands out of grief, and they, thinking I did what I did because I wanted something to eat, stood up all at once and said, "'Father, we'd have a lot less pain if you just eat us!' "'You clothed us in this miserable skin, and you can peel it off. "'That's why, to spare them more grief, I calmed myself down. "'That day and the next day, we didn't speak a word. "'Oh, hard earth, why did you not open wide to swallow us?' "'After we'd gotten to the fourth day, Gado threw himself at my feet, saying, "'My father, why won't you help me?' At that he died, and as sure as you see me right now, I watched the other three fall one by one between the fifth and sixth days. At that point, utterly blind, I started groping over the corpses and calling for them for two days, even though they were dead. That's when fasting had more power than grief. When he'd said this, with his eyes rolling in his head, he sank his teeth into the wretched skull and held it tight like a dog with a bone. Nobody ever forgets this story. It is so horrific, so wild, so problematic, so full of interpretive difficulties that we're going to just take it slowly bit by bit. So what I'd like to do here is I'd like to talk to you about the historical figure of Count Ugolino, then I'd like to go back back through the passage and point out some problems that may not make total sense in it, but not interpretive problems. I'm going to leave those alone in this episode. And then I want to come out by introducing you to the major interpretive problem, which is that last line about fasting and grief. So who was Count Ugolino? Well, he was from a prominent Pisan and Tuscan family, and he was prominent in Pisan and Tuscan politics. His full name was Ugolino della Gherardesca. He was uh, from a lauded Ghibelline family, again, prominent in the politics across central Italy, and his part will particularly play out with Pisa. The first time we know anything historically, that is, not in Dante, the first time we know anything historically about Ugolino, he enters the records in 1252. We see him as a vicar of of King Enzo of Sardinia. Now don't think vicar as in the vicar of Dibley or some English BBC show you've seen. What I mean here by vicar is a representative. It can be a representative of the church in the Middle Ages, but it can also be an administrative substitute, a political representative of King Enzo of Sardinia. And that's the first time we see him in any historical records. The The next time we catch a glimpse of him is in 1257, and he's a participant in a Pisan military victory. This solidifies his place in the Pisan political landscape. He, out of this, becomes a functionary of the Sardinian kingdom of Cagliari. This is a beautifully bureaucratic and well-placed position between Pisa and Sardinia. Do you know anything about them, you know they're very close to each other just across the ocean particularly in Dante's day when Pisa is much closer to the Mediterranean remember Pisa has silted up and gone farther and farther inland over time pisa is closer to the actual mediterranean coast in dante's day and has many dealings with the kingdoms on sardinia the next time we catch a glimpse of ugolino is in 1266 this is when manfred is defeated and dies at benevento When this happens, Guelph power starts to overrun central Italy. After all, Manfred, remember, is supporting the Ghibellines. When Manfred dies, Ugolino switches sides and he suddenly becomes part of the Guelph party or Guelph party party that switch is important to see where he is here in Dante's narrative by 1274 he's back in Pisa attempting to establish a Guelph government in Pisa this would link Pisa closely with Florence and Luca he fails at this to attempt to establish a Guelph government in mostly Ghibelline, Pisa, and he is thereby expelled from Pisa. You would think, going into exile, this would be the end of Ugolino, but he is from far too prominent a family, and he is far too wily to let that happen. He returns two years later in 1276, under the coattails of his grandson, Nino Visconti. Nino Visconti, his own grandson, is a powerful. A political figure he's a judge and ugolino kind of slips in under nino visconti's coattails his own grandson in 1284 ugolino leads the pisan navy in a battle against the genoese he actually loses this battle against the genoese but he is so heroic in the battle and it's seen he's fighting so well for the pisans that he has actually elected the Podesta of Pisa, the mayor of Pisa, but it's more than a mayor. It's really a local warlord. This is the same position that Dante held in Florence. So for four years functions as the Podesta of Pisa with his grandson Nino working as a nearby judge. So it's a very cozy, nice, familial power play that's going on here. In 1285, Ugolino decides that Florence and Luca and their Guelph politics are just too powerful. And so what he does is he tries to insert Pisa into the middle of Florence and Luca. And the way he does this is he seeds some minor castles, some minor land grants to Florence and Luca. He hopes, by doing this, that he will drive the Pisans as a wedge between them and be able to leverage his position between what he sees as a powerful Gelf alliance. Now, don't forget, he has started as ghibelline, he's become a Gelf, and now he's kind of in a weird median place where he's trying to, as they say, have his cake and eat it too. The problem with seeding these castles is their land. And, you know, these local warlords, they like their land and they like their settlements and they like their scope of power. Ugolino comes in for the wrath of his own grandson, Nino. Nino condemns Ugolino for this action Ugolino now again switches sides at the condemnation of his grandson, Nino, and fully becomes a Ghibelline. The Ghibelline party of Pisa is at this point headed up by Archbishop Ruggieri. Yes, this very figure in the passage who Count Ugolino is munching. In 1288, at the height Of his ghibelline power, this lovely Ugolino fellow puts his grandson Nino essentially out to pasture. He sends his own grandson into exile, robbing him of his judgeship and thereby actually betraying his family, yes, but also his former political party. He does this most likely at the behest of Archbishop Ruggieri. Ruggieri kind of gets Ugolino to stab his own grandson in the back to send him into exile, and then Ruggieri does the final act. Ruggieri then betrays Ugolino once Ruggieri gets what he wants. He betrays him by riling up peace and sentiment against those lost minor castles with the help and the backing of the powerful Lanfranchi Gualandi and Sismondi families who we see mentioned in this passage. On July 1st, 1288, Ruggieri summons Ugolino to Pisa. Ruggieri has already worked up Pisan sentiment against him. Ugolino's castle in Pisa is attacked by a local mob, which being directed by these local warlords. They kill one of Ugolino's sons on the spot. They capture two of his other sons, two of his grandsons and himself, and they lock them in this tower where we see this story taking place. Sometime in March of 1289, Ugolino dies nailed up in this tower. Now let's look at the story as it happens in Dante. To do this, I'm just going to read through the passage again, and I'm going to point out details of it that will help us see it and things that may be historically obscure for us now, 700 years later. So let's just start through the passage. Raising his mouth from his savage meal and wiping it on the hair of the head he'd been gnawing from behind, this sinner began—let's stop right there— Notice the naturalistic detail. Dante's craft is on full display here with this wildly disgusting naturalistic detail. I mean, he's been chewing on the brains of Ruggieri and on his skull, and then he wipes his mouth off on Ruggieri's hair. It's so disgusting. And then he starts his speech. But we have to praise Dante for the sheer level of unforgivingly naturalistic detail that starts off canto 33 then ugolino starts off you wish me to renew the despairing sorrow that already presses down on my heart just by thinking about it even before i tell it well if my words will be the seeds which become the fruits of infamy for the traitor that I munch, you'll see me cry and speak at the same time. So right here, Ugolino accepts Dante's pact. Remember, Dante had offered a pact at the end of Canto 32, if what you tell me shows that you have indeed been wronged, then I will reimburse you in the world above as long as what I write with, what I speak with, what I use to talk doesn't go dry. We talked endlessly about what all that means. Interestingly, this is what Ugolino says, right? Is I'm willing to tell this story if it's going to bring Infamy on Ruggieri. But you'll notice that this story is completely about Ugolino. He says he's going to tell it in order. <laughs> to bear the fruits of infamy toward ruggieri but where where the heck is ruggieri he's nowheresville we see him at the start of this passage we see his head getting chewed and then you know his hair used as a cloth and then we see him at the end when ugolino bites down like a dog on a bone on his skull but We don't ever see Ruggieri really in this passage all that much, and that is something that's going to become very important for the interpretation of the passage. Moving on in it. I don't know who you are, Ugolino says, nor in what fashion you've made your way down here, but sure enough, it seems to me you're a Florentine when I hear your voice. Notice that Dante is again noted for his Florentine dialect. So this figure who apparently is blind, he's blind certainly in the prison from starvation later in the story, maybe still here is blind. And maybe this is how we know this, that he's blind is because he can just hear the pilgrim. That blindness is probably thematically important to the passage, but we're just passing on. You've got to know that I was Count Ugolino. He just names itself straight out. No paraphrases, no walking around it. Here's who I am. And this one is Archbishop Ruggieri. I mean, there they are. There's no coyness about who these two are. Now I'll tell you why I'm his neighbor. That the final result of his evil reckonings, despite my trust in him, was that I was seized and put to death. There's no need to tell all that. Notice that Ugolino dismisses the historicity I just made a big deal out of. That whole story, Ugolino just blips past it in three lines. That seems important. Seems important to what's going on inside this passage because Ugolino wants us to focus on the tower not on all that historical machination that I drew out for you moving on but there's no way you could be able to learn how cruel my death was listen up and figure out if he wronged me a little people in the mew that's now called by the name of hunger on account of me and in which others are yet to be shut up had already shown me through its lit several waxing and waning moons where he is is in the piazza dei cavalieri in pisa that place still exists Although the tower is down. Ugolino is right. This story is so famous that the tower of this castle does become called the Tower of Hunger because of what happened to Ugolino there. A Mew is a spot for molting hawks when hawks you know falconry hawks hunting right hawks when hawks molt, they get put in one of these darkened rooms to keep them quiet so it's a very dark room with narrow slits and the point is to keep the hawks quiet so that they don't attack each other so that they don't tear themselves up too much as they're molting just to kind of calm them all down In that place, he had a nightmare, he says, that tore open the veil of the future. This one, and now we get the recitation of the nightmare, this one appeared to be the master and the Lord tracking the wolf and its cub over the mountain that obscures Luca from the Pisans. What mountain? It's difficult to say. It may be Monte Pisano or it may be Monte San Giuliano. It's difficult to know which one he's talking about, but... They're in a borderland, they're on a mountain, and that mountain involves hiding or occlusion. Think about that, boundaries and occlusion, boundaries and occlusion. We're going to come back to that in future episodes of this podcast. Okay, let's, let's go back and do the whole dream in one gulp. This one appeared to be the master and the Lord tracking the wolf and its cub over the mountain that obscures Luca from the Pisans. Driving lean, eager, and trained dogs, he had Gualandi, along with Sismondi and Lanfranchi, arrayed out in front of him. We've already talked about it. These are established warlord families of Pisa. They are out in front of Ruggieri. He's driving them forward, and they're being called Dogs. You don't call local warlords dogs (laughs) without some kind of gutsy maneuver. So in this dream, the prominent peasants warlords are dogs. Ruggieri is driving them forward after a wolf. And its cubs after a short run we're still in the dream the father and the sons now the wolf and its cubs have morphed into a father and sons they were worn out it seemed to me that the flesh was torn from their haunches with razor sharp fangs when i woke up now the dream is over a little before daylight i heard the cries of my own sons notice dante has changed the story In the historical record, Ugolino is seized with two of his sons and two of his grandsons. Dante changes it so that they're all sons. This is not a mistake. Dante would know the story. He would know exactly the story he's telling. In fact, almost everyone would know this story. This is a common story in Dante's day of the fate of Count Ugolino. Why did Dante change the details? That is really crucial. To us, this far away, we say, Dante's making it up. I mean, he's changing the details. To somebody living in Dante's day, they immediately look at this line and say, well, that's not right. It'd be as if, let, let me give you a contemporary example. It'd be as if I said that the World Trade Centers in New York City were attacked and thrown down on September 1st. You know that the minute I say that, you'd say, well that's not right it's not september 1st when that's september 11th you know that i had altered the story in some way this is a similar kind of move this is common knowledge and dante has changed it he's made all the kids in the tower with ugolino his children that seems important especially given the well-known nature of this story let's pass on in the story So they're locked up with them, and the kids are also dreaming. They're asking for some bread in their dreams. You are truly cruel, Ugolino says, if you're not already suffering at the things my heart was predicting for me. If this doesn't make you cry, what would? There's a good question right here, right behind this three-line bit. Does this tell us something about the pilgrim Dante? Is Ugolino looking at the pilgrim? He can't see him, so he's blind. But is he looking at him to hear him? And is he not hearing any tears? Are we being told that the pilgrim is not crying? Or is this directed at me? the reader from Ugolino. Is Ugolino aware of the fact that he's being read? Who's the you here addressed in this passage? The simplest answer is Dante. The more complicated answer is that Ugolino knows he's being read. That's a much more meta question you know we're going to get there. A much more meta question for the passage. But the simplest answer is apparently Ugolino doesn't hear any reaction out of the Pilgrim. The Pilgrim and Virgil are dead silent throughout this entire monologue, which goes on. They woke up, those kids woke up. They'd been dreaming about bread, crying out for something to eat in their dreams. They woke up, and the time approached when our meal was usually brought up to us. Notice again the naturalistic details, the really great attention to detail. We were awfully afraid because of our dreams. <laughs> I'll bet I'd be too. That's when I heard the nails being driven into the door down at the base of that horrible tower. We just have to say that Dante is a great storyteller. He is really building this thing up. I mean, they're up in this tower, they're starving, and then they hear the door being nailed shut. According to many of the early commentators, not only was the door nailed shut, but the keys were thrown in the river. Maybe. But we can say that Dante's a great storyteller, but we can also say this. Ugolino is a great storyteller. I mean, it's not just Dante who is the great storyteller here. This is Ugolino's narrative. And Ugolino is being shown as a really fantastic storyteller. That's when I looked, he says, at the face of my children without saying a word. I didn't cry. Oh, this is a really interesting point. I didn't cry. He just complained that perhaps the pilgrim or maybe the reader isn't crying at his story and then. His first response is not to cry. Did you, did you just feel something go a little off the rails there? You should. I turned into stone inside, but they cried, and my little Anselm. Anselm is actually Ugolino's grandson. But again, Dante has changed it so they're all his sons. Said, you look so weird, father. What's up? Even then I didn't cry, nor offer a reply all that day and the following night until the sun shone on the world again. The moment a few rays of light shone into that sorrowful cell, I could see my own face stamped in their four faces. This is an incredibly interesting moment of mirroring if we want to get very Freudian and and even very French Lacanian by the French psychoanalytic philosopher Jacques Lacan, we can talk all about a mirroring action here and what that does ultimately to the self. Hmm. We have to come back to that, even if it's a postmodern reading of the passage. I chewed on my hands out of grief, and they, thinking I did what I did because I wanted something to eat, stood up all at once and said, Father, We'd have a lot less pain if you just eat us. You clothed us in this miserable skin, and you can peel it off. Oh, this is so... I laugh only because it's so uncomfortable. I mean, these kids stand up and basically, right, say, you gave us these bodies. Go ahead, consume them. Holy crow. That's why to spare them more grief, I calm myself down. That day and the next, we didn't speak a word. Oh, hard earth why did you not open wide to swallow us? Let's stop right there. This is a step outside the narrative, right? The story's going along. Tick, 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 tick. Here's the details. Here's the dream. Here's this. Here's that. Here's the starving. Here's my kids saying this to me. The story's ticking along and now we suddenly step out and we have a moment in which we're not in narrative. He's addressing the earth. Why didn't you open up and swallow us? Watch when we come back and start talking about the interpretation of this. Watch the times that Ugolino breaks. The narrative that he steps out of the narrative and says, why aren't you crying or says, oh, hard earth, why didn't you open up to swallow us? And notice that this is a secular plea. This is not, oh, God, why didn't you come to save us? This is a completely non-religious plea. Oh, hard earth why did you not open wide to swallow us after we'd gotten to the fourth day gado threw himself at my feet saying now gado was actually ugolino's son that's truly one of his sons gado saying my father why won't you help me at that he died and as sure as you see me right now i watched the other three fall one by one between the fifth and sixth days at that point Utterly blind, I started groping over the corpses and calling for them for two days. Notice the incredible detail to time. Fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day eighth day two more days beyond right the sixth day notice the incredible amount of attention given to the ticking of time in the passage so here he is blind probably from hunger groping over the corpses of his sons for two days calling to them even though he knows they're dead he knows something but refuses to believe it just hold that right in your head and then comes that line that's when fasting had more power than grief we'll come back to that when he said this with his eyes rolling in his head he sank his teeth into the wretched skull that is of archbishop ruggieri and held it tight like a dog with a bone notice the repeated imagery of dogs in cockatus we had those powerful peas and families as dogs in the dream we now have ugolino as a dog with a bone remember earlier the faces were purple but the word used was dog-like notice the repeated references to dogs in the ninth circle of hell Dogs are not what you think now. Not pretty little pets, not little dachshunds, or my beautiful rough collies, or your beautiful golden labs. The dogs are not what they are now. Dogs are used for hunting. Dogs are war machines. They're actually used in battles. And of course, they're feral, many of them, and wild. The repeated references to dogs inside the passage. Okay. So I've gone through it and I've detailed some of the hmm, problems that you now can see how the passage lies in the text. Let's talk just momentarily about that last line. The famed line, that's when fasting had more power than grief. I can tell you that there is so much debate about this line. Dantistas everywhere argue about what this exactly means. And the passion with which they argue says something about the need for clarity here ugolino tells an incredibly clear story and comes down and his last line is muddled fasting had more power than grief here's the basic question and we're going to ferret this out over the next several episodes did he eat his children or did he die of starvation that's what that line is basically balanced between. It's possible to interpret it both ways. But I want to tell you one thing. The word he uses, Dijuno, is definitely fasting. It is not starvation. Some translators, in order to make the line clearer, say that's when starvation Had more power than grief. No. That's trumping your interpretation of the passage. That's saying that what happened is that Ugolino was so hungry he ate the bodies of his dead children. That is a possible interpretation, but the word is definitely fasting, which makes the last line cloudy, which is the whole point. Ugolino tells this incredibly precise story full of natural detail and temporal markers first day, third day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day, eighth day, and then comes out at the end with a line that is completely up to interpretation <laughs> that is completely foggy at its very core and then we come out of that into the last three lines when he'd said this with his eyes rolling in his head he sank his teeth into the wretched skull and held it tight like a dog with a bone that's as clear as day so we went from pretty good clarity to mud And back to clarity with what's happening. Did he eat his children? We'll talk about that endlessly. Is he eating Ruggieri? Yes, without a doubt. He is eating Ruggieri down here in the last circle of hell. So where do I want to go from here? Let me just briefly outline this. In the next episode of this podcast, I want to talk about how Ugolino fits into comedy. That's our next bit. After that, I want to talk about how Ugolino fits into theology. That's a very important key function of this passage. So at least in the next two episodes, we're going to talk about Ugolino in terms of comedy as a whole. And then we're going to talk about Ugolino in terms of Christian theology, which may help us understand this passage more and make what is the last great center of hell's speech richer deeper fuller as crazy wild and gorgeous as it actually is so that's my introduction to the last great center of hell count ugolino we went through the passage we talked about its historicity we talked about that what the lines mean inside the passage you should now have a much clearer understanding of the speech now we turn to the question of what it means and that's the hard question Not just the interpretation of the last line, but what does the whole darn thing mean top to bottom? What is going on here? And why is Dante allowing this giant speech to take up so much real estate at the very end of El Canto? 33, only one Canto to go before we're out of Inferno. Why is this sitting here? And what's it doing here? Well, I think... It's summing up comedy more of that ahead subscribe rate do all those things that you need to do in order to be a part of this podcast thank you for being on the journey with me and i can't wait until we start to talk about what this wild last sinner of hell actually means and why he's here i'm mark scarborough i'll see you next time